Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Zachary Carabell, author of the book Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. Zachary, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Something about myself? Wow, that is like an open-ended question that I have absolutely no idea how to answer. Uh... I am uh, born and raised in New York City, where I currently reside. I have spent 80% of my life in a 10-block radius, making me very Mayberry and Manhattan-ish. And I wrote a book about a New York investment firm that uh, has also been in the city for 190-plus years. So... Clearly, I have a provincial bent, although I did live abroad for 10 years and have written a lot about the Middle East and other parts of the world. So I don't want to overstate the provincialism, but I thought that may be something to add to the mix. Well, uh, I apologize for putting it quite this way, but what led you to uh, write a book about a local firm? (laughs) Well, it was a local firm with national and global influence and one that most people have not heard of. And if they have any inkling or awareness, it is likely because one of the partners of Brown Brothers Harriman's later partners, who's not part of the Brown family that started the firm in 1800, one of the later partners is Prescott Bush, who was a senator from Connecticut, a Brown Brothers Harriman partner, and of course, the father of George Herbert Walker Bush, who was president in 1989, and George W. Bush, who was president in 2001. And, you know, that's where many people might have had an awareness of the firm without being aware of the firm. But for me, it really was a way of writing a history of how money made America and how America then made the world and how many of the people and firms that had made the money that made America then created a global system as well as a national one that in many ways is still the system we are living in today for better or for worse. And that understanding how the world that we're in came to be, understanding the pivotal role of money and then the the pivotal role of this firm, Brown Brothers Harriman, in creating literally money, the paper money that that fuels us, uh, was a way of telling that story and telling the story of a lot of the evolution of the country over the past couple hundred years. I think it's a very fascinating description because I, looking back upon the book, I can see all those themes running through it. And one of the ones that, that, that stands out for me in that regard is your beginning, where you talk about the origins of the first firm, which is Brown Brothers, which has that quintessentially American combination of uh, of, of 
immigrant coming to America and the notion of, you know, rising up from maybe not poverty, but definitely, you know, going on to bigger and better things because of that fantastic move. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about who Alexander Brown was and how he went from being a Belfast linen merchant to becoming, you know, to getting into uh, uh, what we would nowadays call finance. So as you mentioned, one of the you know, peculiarities or fascinating things about the United States is that you go back a couple of generations and everyone is kind of the same. That that no matter how powerful that establishment, and I just talked a little bit about Prescott Bush and this, you know, this the sense of this governing wasp elite having such power in the United States, you go back a few generations and you're an Irish middle class linen merchant fleeing sectarian violence in, in, in Belfast in eighteen hundred, moving to Baltimore to be a linen merchant. That, that most things in America have modest beginnings because we don't have centuries of landed aristocracy or uh, classes or mandarins, you name it. And I'm, I'm not saying that celebratorily. I'm just saying that observationally. And that the beginning of this firm, much like the beginning of the new United States at the turn of the 19th century, is, is immigrant fueled. And, you know, this man flees this life that he had sort of grown up in resettles, sets up shop, literally, uh, near the wharfs of Baltimore, and becomes a merchant. And what may be more unusual about him than some others is that he had a very specific vision and a very specific set of, of morals and attitudes. And maybe that was more common than we think. Uh, but his letters and his culture, partly because this firm survives for 200 plus years, are preserved both literally and in the culture of the firm today. And it's a, it's a kind of steeped in rectitude, sounds a lot like some blend of Ben Franklin, Poor Richard's almanac aphorisms and something Polonius would have said in the play Hamlet. Things like, it's better to give up gain if the risk is too great. That trust is hard to gain and easily lost, so you should be careful about who you go into business with, as, you know, that, that their bad reputation will bring you down, so... Trust and reputation is essential. Um, you know, don't the, the, the time to be prepared for a crisis is before, not during. Um, don't diversify too much. Focus on what you're doing. He had this line where he would say over and over, "Shoemaker, stick to thy last." You know, the last is the the wooden thing that makes the shoe. And and the point of that aphorism was, kind of do what you do, do it well, and do it again, and keep doing. It. Um, and so it's a very small C conservative mentality, but it's the foundational ethos of a multi-generation, multi-century firm that becomes utterly essential to the workings of American capitalism. I, I like how you ex uh, demonstrate the, that in practice when you talk about his response to the War of 1812, which was this you know, conflict that uh, really jeopardized a lot of the operations of his firm. But you point out how he, you know, through you know, by practicing those, that, that, those concepts, he uh, comes out of it ahead. And yet at the same time, that's offset with the risk that the very real risk that, that he took with uh, the Baltimore and Ohio railroad. 
And I, I thought that was a, a, a very fascinating counterpoint to say, yes, he's you know, this is a very conservative firm, but then you have this novel technology, this 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 concept of, of a railroad, not just a railroad, but a railroad that's powered by a steam engine, which was it, it, which was not just novel, it was, it was practically experimental at the time. And yet, as you explain, you know, he and his sons play a very large story in in terms of you know bringing that technology, that particular railroad to America. Right. So they basically cr- help fund the the railroad revolution, which is interesting because the later really big transcontinental railroad boom after the Civil War, they largely don't participate in because it's too risky, too much speculation. So remember, most of the people, most of the railroad barons who make a huge amount of money don't make money building and operating the railroads. They make money buying the bonds that built the railroads after everyone who had invested in the railroads went bankrupt. And when Alexander Brown and his sons in Baltimore fund this first railroad, the B&O, the Baltimore and Ohio, they do it for a very specific reason. And that reason is not, I'm going to make a lot of money building a railroad. It's, I'm a citizen of Baltimore. I'm one of the leaders of the city. This is Alexander Brown, the patriarch, and, and his sons, one of whom was in Liverpool, one of whom was in New York, one of whom was in Philadelphia. And the fear was amongst the leaders of Baltimore in the 1820s that the city was about to be economically surpassed by New York and Philadelphia. New York because of its natural harbor and advantages, and but also because of the opening of the Erie Canal, which made the route to the Ohio River Valley, which was like the economic engine of the early 19th century. Um, and that Philadelphia was also going to build a canal over the mountains into the Ohio River Valley. And that if Baltimore didn't do something, it would fall behind. And if it fell behind, then the Brown family would also be less affluent or less um, able to sustain itself. And this idea of the public good has to be attended to for the private gain to be intact and, and replicable is part of a mantra I talk about generation by generation. The private gain and public good can't be or shouldn't be separated uh, and that you need to attend to the public good and be of service to the public good. And so Alexander Brown helps underwrite and raises money to build this highly speculative railroad. No one had built a passenger steam engine railroad anywhere in the world, even in the the steam engine that existed in uh, uh, Stockton and Darlington in Northern England. And they don't make any money. They don't lose a lot of money, but they don't make any money because they do it as a public works, not as a private speculative venture. And that's a template, I think, that gets repeated more than not in Brown Brothers history, but is one that becomes increasingly alien to American capitalism. It also strikes me in some ways as a uh, it's like a parting gift to uh, the Baltimore community because it's around that time that you describe the transition of the firm's primary activities from Baltimore to New York. Why did they leave Baltimore? Because as you explain uh, in, uh, early in the book, that a lot of their interests are very much tied to the South, uh, Southern trade, and yet they. Uh, while Alexander stays there and one of his sons stay there, you describe how his uh, son in New York, you know, is, uh, you know, becomes in effect the, uh, the next generation to really take the firm uh, in, in new directions. Right. So part of it, and we can get into the, the degree to which the early success of the house of Brown is, is in ineluctably bound up in the cotton trade and the slave system, um, a system they hated, but benefited from, but hated, but benefited from. And the, you know, the complexity of human beings being embedded in a system they also find morally wrong. 
um, that basically Alexander Brown and Sons never leaves Baltimore. So the Baltimore house of the of, of Brown brothers remains in Baltimore. Um, but the locus of business moves to New York on the one hand and Liverpool on the other because of the transatlantic trade that, that, that Brown essentially has a, such a huge part of and the cotton trade as well. And they partly depart from the locus of gravity from Baltimore because Alexander Brown dies in the early 1830s. And the Baltimore sun is not as dynamic as the Liverpool sun or the New York sun. And also because of the economic shifts where New York and Liverpool just become more important than Baltimore. Alex Brown and Sons as an independent Baltimore house after the 20th century actually stays a very important part of the Baltimore financial scene until it's bought by Deutsche Bank in the 1990s. Um, but the locus of business moves, as does the locus of the U.S. economy, more toward New York and then eventually toward the interior of the country. And that's where Brown Brothers becomes even more potent, powerful and important. I was wondering if you could take a, a moment here to pause and, and, and if you could explain a bit uh, what exactly was their business during this period? Because I, 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 you know, talked earlier about the idea that you're, they transitioned from being linen merchants to being involved in finance. What exactly does that entail, and uh, and and how is that you know connecting them to, uh, as you mentioned already, the the slave economy and some of the broader developments taking place in America? Okay, so first they're linen merchants. And um, Alexander Brown, you know, linen was the ba- was the main export of Ireland and Belfast. He goes to Baltimore and then he becomes an importer of linens from Ireland. Uh, and then he starts trading other things because he's a good business person. A-, a whole panoply of goods. And he starts building some ships to transport the goods. And by the 1820s, if you're going to, you know, have ships and transport goods transatlantic, the most important commodity that's being shipped is cotton. So they become cotton merchants often taking, you know, buying from some plantation on their own account and then selling it, presumably for more money once they reach Liverpool. But then the firm and Alexander and his sons, particularly William and Liverpool and James in New York, realize, you know, there's only so much money to be made from the physical control of goods. Plus, you're always vulnerable. Uh, there could be a panic. There could be a financial collapse. The price of cotton could go down hugely from the time you buy it to the time you sell it. And there's only so much cotton you can trade physically. And if you build ships, they're expensive and they're vulnerable. They can be sunk, they can be seized. So rather than becoming a physical merchant of goods, they decide to become a paper facilitator of physical goods. Because one of the problems from time immemorial has been, if I want to sell you something and you live in a different city, particularly a different country, uh, I want to know that if I part with what I'm selling, that you're going to pay me. You, on the other hand, don't want to pay me until you get what you're buying. And, and that's an insolvable problem on the face of it, unless someone steps in and, and is the intermediary that says, don't worry, you'll get paid, and, and says on the other side, don't worry, you'll get your goods. And that means they help set prices, they help negotiate terms, and that's what Brown Brothers ends up doing. They write these letters of credit, which facilitate that transaction that I just described, and then magnify that to the entire economy of trade in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. And Brown Brothers being the central and most trusted issuer of these letters. And that's where they make a huge amount of their money. And that's where they essentially they go from being merchants to merchant bankers. And they get away from the physical trade of goods and become the financers of goods. And then they later start taking their money 
and and investing it in deals, whether it was the railroad in Baltimore, whether it's the transatlantic steamships in the 1840s and 50s, and then in just an ever-widening array of things. It's one of the aspects of your book that I thought was really fascinating because while you don't uh, really, you know, make this a central point of it. What they're doing is a very traditional form of capitalism. You see it in the Middle Ages with like the the, the Fugger family, or you see it more recently with the Rothschilds about how it was these family firms that had uh, members planted in various vital cities, and that was the basis of the trust in the trade. And how what you're seeing with the, with the Brown brothers is they're following that traditional pattern, but then as you go through the 19th century, you're seeing how it evolves into a much more modern form of capitalism, one that is you know is is not quite as as centrally family based, but one that that certainly uh, you know you know the Brown brothers are certainly you know, associated with, given that it's literally in their name. Right. So they essentially, as you just said, go from a traditional family firms underwriting trade because of those trust networks. And you could always trust family. That doesn't mean like you trusted them to be good people. It just means that you, you kind of knew they were bound to you by blood um, to a bank to, and, and in, in the case of Brown brothers, a privately held bank. And that privately held part is also pretty key because one of the core ideas of the book is that, the capitalism that we think of today, which is shareholder capitalism, where you know the only imperative that a company has is to maximize profits for shareholders, but also you know that that changes the equation of risk and reward for those running those companies, such that they can, you know, risks can kind of be diversified across anonymous shareholders and at worst onto government, but gains all go to the the owners and the runners of the business. So, you know, the CEO of a large tech company a founder or, or even someone like Tim Cook, he can make $100 million a year, or if you're Zuckerberg at Facebook, he can make billions of dollars a year. But he can't personally lose hundreds of millions of dollars a year or billions of dollars a year. Shareholders will lose that, or you know, ultimately government will. The Brown Brothers model of capitalism was that every single deal they did, they could personally lose money because it was their money that they were putting up. They were partners. It was a partnership version of capitalism. And I think that led to a different culture of capitalism, not just a different structure of capitalism. And I'm not romanticizing that, right? It was an exclusive clubby closed system by the time they really emerged as a self-conscious elite in the 19th and 20th century. And I, I wouldn't for one minute suggest we should, <laughs> could, or would want to go back to that. But that doesn't mean there aren't lessons to be learned from their version of capitalism and that nothing is permanently ordained and that we, we risk defining a current variant of our system as the entire possibility of what it could be. And I think that's wrong. I think there can there are other capitalisms and Brown Brothers represented. And it other was fascinating to see how they adapted to their times. And and one of the areas where I thought that really came out nicely was when you were talking about the the Civil War uh, in the United States, where you have a by this point you have a, a, a very uh, diversified firm. You have Alex Brown uh, and, and Sons in Baltimore. You have Brown Brothers in New York. You have Brown, uh, what becomes Brown Shipley in uh, in uh, England, and how they have to respond in, in various ways to the you know the, the outbreak of this war, which uh, you know, uh, much as with the War of eighteen twelve, could potentially be very devastating to their concerns. And, and as you explained, this is at the same time that they are also you know having to confront a lot of the issues with slavery 
that on a practical level, you know, while they deplored it, they you, you explained there was also you know, part of their business. How did they deal with you know slavery becoming this uh, issue that leads to war, and how did they deal with the war? How did they survive the war and not just survive, but 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 you know uh, thrive? So one of the reasons they get out of the cotton trade, particularly the physical cotton trade, is because they are morally opposed to slavery and also. Uh, economically deeply complicit in the slave system. And while that is a contradiction, um, I've been saying in a lot of interviews in a way that I kind of is implicit in the book, but is much more explicit the way I'm saying it now, that I I do think individuals and firms and all of us can be messy and complicated, that you can be self-serving and of service, you can be selfish and selfless, and you can be complicit in systems you find morally wrong, particularly when they're governing systems. So I think the United States by the 1850s, and, and this is part of the rise of the Republican Party and part of why Lincoln's rhetoric remains so ringing today, is that there was a growing awareness, not just that you, could, you couldn't sustain a nation that was half free and half slave, but that essentially a half slave nation meant a slave nation, that the economy of the United States by the 1850s was based on a cotton economy and a slave economy. Uh, And even if the North was getting more diverse, you couldn't separate those. And so the only thing you could do is end that system. And uh, if if you were morally opposed to slavery, like there was no continuation because your economy depended on it. If you wore a cotton shirt, if you were a merchant in the North, you know, if you were using Southern commodities, which you were. Um, And the Browns are kind of a, a microcosm of that struggle because they you know, are simultaneously underwriting a lot of the cotton trade, but they're also founding supporters of the Republican Party in the 1850s. They um, are, you know, thoroughly anti-slavery. They oppose, they're worried about the annexation of Texas in the 1840s because of the slave issue. So by the 1860s, they're unequivocally supportive of the Union cause. And this is a problem even for the Liverpool House because, you know, a lot of the English merchants at the beginning of the Civil War um, considered recognizing the South as an independent nation because they were worried legitimately that it would cut off the supply of cotton, particularly when Lincoln blockades the South. Uh, and they end up not doing that. But, you know, supporting the Union cause in Liverpool, which the House of Brown does, was a very unpopular move in England at the time. Uh, but they do it anyway. So they emerge from the war and they, the era that follows is one that's famously known as the Gilded Age. And it's one where you've already talked about the, uh, you know, the, the growth of speculative capitalism, the uh, boom in railway construction, uh, the, the, with, with all the risks that were, in, uh, uh, you know, that were associated with that. And, and you have Brown Brothers surviving. You, you've already mentioned that it was conservative. But this is also the era where you start to see a, a new actor coming into your book, and that is E.H. Harriman. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what Brown Brothers is doing and, and how Harriman really serves as a contrast with that and how, in effect, what you're describing at that point is almost two different levels of capitalism almost running in tandem, maybe one a little bit ahead of the other, but both of them you know, kind of heading in the same direction. Right. So in many ways, what's interesting about the Brown Brothers itself is that they are a much quieter firm in the 1880s, 1890s and turn of the century than J.P. Morgan and you know, Stanford and um, Frick and uh, Carnegie and these people. And, and partly because they don't participate in the speculation of the railroad boom, um, much like they don't participate in the speculation of the Internet boom in the 1990s, meaning 
they've learned to be careful of, of speculation, even though some speculation in those errors unlock the new technological age. Uh, they make a lot of money in the 1880s and 1890s, and they do modest railroad deals. You know, they, they, they run a small railroad line in Maine, and they invest in one near Chicago. But they're not the drivers of it, because, again, they're not going to put up their capital to be lost. And meanwhile, you have these robber barons, as we've defined them, right? They weren't called that then. These railroad barons, most of whom, like J.P. Morgan, and especially like E.H. Harriman, who was, it becomes Brown Brothers Harriman, um, make their money as the financers of bankrupt railroads. So the people who made money in the railroads were either the financiers or in the case of like Collis Huntington and Leland Stanford, the ones who took federal money, to, which underwrote the creation of the first transcontinental lines in the late 1860s and early 1870s. Um, and that's, you know, E.H. Harriman was the, I'm going to imprint my name on history. I'm going to use my power of will and aggressive and ambition and make money and change the world, which was a very un-Brown Brothers-like mantra. What's interesting is that by the time the next generation, his son, Averill, who inherits the fortune, because the next generation all go to the same schools. They all go to Yale, they all go to Groton, I mean, and the like. Um, the culture of that of the children of those railroad barons ends up being remarkably like the Brown Brothers culture and is infused by the same mentality of responsibility, elites, service, you know, the public good has to be served for the private gain to be maintained. And they really, they, they preach this and they practiced it. And um, so you have this marriage between the fortunes of Harriman and this old wasp rectitude firm called Brown Brothers in, at, the end of the, at the beginning of the Great Depression to create Brown Brothers Harriman. And it's like a merger of old money, then old money and new. But their culture by that time of the, of the, of the you know, the early 20th century generation that goes to Yale and goes to Groton ends up being kind of the same elite culture of we were born into privilege and we have great responsibility to give back. And um, there's a balance in society that has to be maintained, that has to be led by men of rectitude and responsibility, um, and that private gain has to be balanced by public good. And, I, and they believed that stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was hypocritical. I just don't. Uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't incredibly self-serving and incredibly exclusionary and problematic as a class structure. I just mean they believed that they had an obligation to. And serve as you explained, it's during this period that you start to see them doing this service, not just in terms of how they run their firm, but also that you're starting to see them getting uh, more involved in public service. And I was wondering, go ahead. Right, and the idea of yeah, so the idea of public services is a really important one because in the nineteenth century, most people who made money it didn't even occur to them to go into government. Government wasn't that important, and it wasn't so embedded. You know, it, it had import during the Civil War because you were fighting a war. But you know, in the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, the size of the government was de minimis, and the size of the, the you know the executive branch, like you could walk up and have a coffee with Chester Arthur. There were no guards. There was it wasn't there was no imperial presidency. There was hardly a, a government bureaucracy. And the largest part of the government bureaucracy in those years was the post office. Um, so in the 20th century, you have a shift. As America gets more affluent and more powerful, uh, the elites of whom Brown Brothers, Harriman are kind of the card-carrying founding members, take this idea of public service and are like, well, we have to actually serve the public good, particularly in moments of crisis. And that meant an inordinate number of them volunteered to be in the military in World War One, 
Uh, and then an inordinate number of them go into government either during the beginning of the New Deal, even though their class, you know, was 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 the boogeyman for a lot of the New Deal. You know, the capitalists who brought down, almost brought down the entire global system. They were not in good favor, at least not in terms of the New Deal rhetoric, but they still believed they should be in government. And they believed in some regulation. They supported the creation of the Glass-Steagall Act. They supported the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And then they serve in World War II because that's what you did. And then they helped create the Cold War architecture, which is also global architecture that includes the Marshall Plan. You know, you spend billions of dollars to rebuild Western Europe because a prosperous Western Europe was seen as essential, one, to prevent the takeover of communism and two, to allow for the United States to prosper. So you spend money to make money. You you give money to get money, uh, but you serve in government. You 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 attend to the public good because it's inextricably linked to your private gain. Uh, I'd like to uh, talk a bit about that public service, that Averill in particular uh, model, but also others like who are associated with the firm, like Bob Lovett and Prescott Bush. But before we do that, I- I'd like for you to explain how these two firms who had these shared values ended up becoming one firm. Why, why did they merge in 1930? What were the circumstances behind it? And and, and to what degree uh, were there any you know complications involved? So they, they partly merged, I mean, they obviously merged because of the, the storms of the Great Depression. I mean, it wasn't then called the Great Depression, but the storm brewing in 1930 were threatening to the future of both of the firms, even though they, they were both managed relatively prudently. The Harriman firm was actually not managed so prudently, but he had so much money, it didn't matter. And the Browns had managed themselves prudently, but when everything is collapsing, it's hard to stay afloat, even if you had great risk management, even if you were conservative, even if you were prudent. Um, And they had also, as has happened many times, picked exactly the wrong time to buy Argentine bonds, which they did in the late 1920s, um, just as Argentina's economy was about to collapse and Perón was about to come into power. So they merge also because... The, the, the heads of the Harriman firm, Averill Harriman and his younger brother, Roland Harriman, uh, had gone to Yale with this man, Robert Lovett, who, whose father had helped manage the Harriman Railroad Empire and who then marries into the Brown family by marrying the daughter of Alexander Brown's great-grandson. And he, uh, uh, they all knew each other at Yale. They all were similar classes between 1912 and 1917. And others of that group include Henry Luce, the founding editor of Time magazine, who was also funded by Brown Brothers, um, uh, Dean Acheson, who becomes Secretary of State. So it is a very intimately connected class by, by bonds of marriage and education. And the merger of the firms is kind of a merger of, of classmates, who by that time are in their mid-30s. And while the elder Browns are running the Brown firm, um, the younger partners are taking more control. And they kind of casually talk about this. There's a story of them going to their Yale reunion on a privately chartered rail car from Grand Central Station, playing poker, you know, and wagering more than probably the average wage of an American for, for a week and saying, oh, maybe we should combine because times are tough. And the merger happens relatively seamlessly and pretty quickly and um, is born of that depression, but also kind of the natural culmination of of these connections of class and culture and, and family ties. 
It, it also has the effect, as you describe, of uh, uh, you know, Averill is able to. He's he's early, evolved early on in in in, in uh, you know the Harriman firm, but it's really in the 1930s that he goes into government service and then has that rise where he, he had that great picture of him sitting with uh, Churchill and Stalin, and and it reaches the point where by the 1950s he's being talked about as as a presidential candidate. Yeah, and he's so, governor of New York too. I mean, he becomes governor of New York. And, and, and yet he, he's simply the most prominent of these people in Brown Brothers Harriman who are involved in government service during this period. What uh, led – you talked about what drew them into public service. What led the uh, you know leading figures, people like Franklin Roosevelt, to turn to uh, Harriman and, and Lovett and, 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 uh, and basically ask them to uh, come in and, and uh, serve in these very uh, influential positions? Well, I mean, certainly they were – I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was a – of exactly the same, you know, class structure and system as these guys were, right? He, he had gone to Groton, Teddy Roosevelt had gone to Groton, he went to Harvard. I mean, they were, you know, they were all of a part, which is why subsequent generations have questioned just how either progressive or even liberal the New Deal was. I mean, Roosevelt railed against the captains of industry and the barons of finance for raiding and plundering the public good. But, you know, the, the actual actions that were taken were more modest in scope than the rhetoric was. Uh, partly because Franklin Roosevelt was, again, part of this same class. And partly because that class, I think, understood the need to give, to give, to satisfy the public's legitimate need to believe that the financial world was not uh, lining its own pockets at the expense of the entire system. So then they, they, they not only go into government, but they support the creation of a regulatory structure that partly reassures people um, that the interests of the public were going to be guarded and not just the interests of a privileged few. Uh, and there, of course, there are many other, you know, people who go into government in these years that aren't of this Northeast elite. I, I think you could probably overstate the role of them. And I, I don't think in the book I do overstate it, meaning... They were one elite amongst many. There were agricultural, you know, heartland people who were powerful and influential. Henry Wallace, who's secretary of agriculture and then vice president under Roosevelt, doesn't come from that background at all. He's in Iowa. Um, you know, his father had been a prominent Iowa politician and he's a, you know, owns a corn seed company. So there's other trees into politics at the time than the Northeast elite. But they do have an inordinate role in shaping the global system because they're much, they're much more tuned to the the warp and woof of global finance and brown brothers having started as a transatlantic family firm liverpool new york baltimore is even more attuned to the waves of trade and capital and how how vital those are and would be in the future to the health of the united states and the, the prosperity of the world i think it's also important to note that they're not just involved in the financial aspects that lovett's uh an assistant secretary of war that uh that harriman is an ambassador they're, they're not just you know staying within a particular financial lane Correct. but you have them you know in, involved in this growing presence of america in the world at, at one of the most uh, critical times in modern history no that's exactly right i mean they 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 enter public service and they diversify their portfolios you know, Lovett had been one of the early, there was something called the Yale Air Unit, which um, <laughs> was staffed by Yale seniors who then get commissioned into the Air Force in 1917 uh, and then served briefly in France. 
and love it, you know, developed this lifelong passion for air power and helps create the modern air force, which was really more abundant by the, at the entry at, by 1939, as it was clear that war might be coming, there, there was no really cohesive air force and it wasn't a separate branch. It was part of, it was part of the war department. Um, and love it helps create that, you know, he's, he is an air and he's, 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 you know, building a modern air force was about logistics as much as anything else, creating production lines and, and understanding how business and factories and, and money worked. And, and love it is really good at that and helps create that. And then as secretary of defense is much more of an implementer than a policymaker, um, you know, helps recreate the national security state and militarizes American foreign policy. And I think there's a lot of negatives in that. Um, and love it was really central to the creation of a lot of that. Uh, you, uh, by the, you also talk about how basically, you know, that sum total of connections and background and experience all contributes to the aura of the wise men. And, and, and I, I find that, that you know, your, your examination of that very interesting because you, you start to see all that system that you've described in those chapters come under real strain as you get to the 1960s, of course, with Vietnam, but but also a lot of the broader changes that are taking place. It, it's, it, it seems as though that, it, that in, in effect, the, the country is starting to move beyond them by that point. And, and they're in this position where they're, they're making all sorts of that the very notion of the wise men, it's more of an advisory position than it is necessarily that they're the ones pulling the levers as they were, say, 10, 15, 20 years previously. Right. So by the 1960s, and you have this group, I mean, the wise men comes from a term that was put on people like Lovett and Harriman and, uh, um, you know, Atchison and uh, John McCloy and these others who Lyndon Johnson turns to for advice about what to do in Vietnam. And by and large, that group of wise men, and this was written about brilliantly by Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas years ago in a book, oddly enough, called The Wise Men. And, <laughs> and, and he, Johnson, you know, who was ne never secure about foreign policy, very secure about domestic, really takes in their advice. And their advice was, don't pull out of Vietnam. Again, you know, we can't be seen to lose a war. It'll em embolden communists around the world. And so the, the course the wise men chart by the late 60s and 70s is seen by the popular culture as disastrous. And there's a real, you know, rejection and revulsion of the elite. And that coincides with Brown Brothers Harriman really receding from public um, profile by the 70s. Partly because they are then are not involved in the rise of shareholder capitalism that takes over in the late seventies and eighties where people start to be able to bet other people's money on deals in a way that Brown brothers as a privately held partnership never could. Uh, and in a way that Lehman brothers and Goldman Sachs, when they were private partnerships, couldn't because every deal they did, it was their money. And when everything starts going public in the eighties, it changes the incentive structure so that these firms that are public like Goldman and Lehman and Morgan Stanley and, and the rest can start wagering other people's money, shareholders' money, with less concern about personal risk and with the idea that risk would then be shared and loss would be shared and gains would be, you know, you'd get the gains and other people would bear the costs. And Brown Brothers doesn't go that route, partly because their their business model is, is a kind of sleepier and simpler one. Their, their investment bank gets hived off because of Glass-Steagall. So they are a commercial bank that takes in deposits and gives loans and underwrites and does a lot of foreign exchange stuff. Um, 
in, in kind of the back corners of finance, profitable, but, but not hugely profitable and not very dramatic and not headline grabbing the way big deals and corporate raiders were. So they fade from the public imagination. And then people like Michael Milken and greed is good. And that takes over. And the irony, of course, is that Drexel Burnham, which is where Milken makes his fortune, is the investment bank that gets hived off from Brown Brothers in 1933 and 34 because of Glass-Steagall. So like the bastard stepchild of Brown Brothers is, <laughs> is the icon of greed is good, um, which I love as a kind of, you know, just the way all these things are ultimately interconnected. Um, what I, what I liked was, uh, I mean, I, I like what you presented, but I, I actually uh, took, took a slightly different pattern, which is it, it's as though you, you get to either those final chapters, you're talking about the rise and fall of these firms, you know, Drexel Birnbaum and, and, and Lehman brothers. And, and, and these are names that, you know, we, we, you know, know for their spectacular, uh, you know, flame outs and there's Brown brothers, Harriman steadily pl- uh, plotting along. I mean, they're not huge. They're not making, you know, enormous fortunes, but they're doing quite well for themselves and they're enduring. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like a, a they're, they're modestly surviving at a time where a lot of, of, of bigger uh, firms, you know, uh, you know, came out and then flamed out. Yeah. I mean, part of it is like, you know, I, I, I faced this when I wrote a book years ago about Muslim, Christian and Jewish coexistence called peace be upon you. And part of my joke in that is the problem of writing a history of peace is it's, it, it's not very dramatic, right? Peace is the absence of drama. <laughs> it's like two people wake up, they're like, they don't like each other, but they're not fighting, and then they go to bed. Um, you know, a firm that's quietly profitable, but not systemically dangerous, that doesn't do wildly speculative deals, that kind of purposely navigates underneath the radar because culturally they don't want to be the news. They don't want to be the story. Uh, It's hard to make the story, even if they're really important to how all the story evolved. And that was one of the challenges of writing the book. Uh, But I think one of the reasons why it's important to have written it, uh, that that the degree to which we lionize the drama and and underappreciate the undramatic and the systemically cautious uh, is a problem of how we define capitalism. Like, I think you want a dynamic society. I think you want innovation. I think the United States at best can be that. But I don't think you want the people at the heart of a financial system to, to, to all be driven by greed and personal gain, full stop, and to be willing to engage in rampant speculation. I think you want there to be rampant speculation, but you don't want it to be at the heart of the system. <laughs> you want it to be the periphery of the system. And if anything, what's happened is those things got reversed. You know, the greed and gain and I want to get mine quickly and a lot has become more dominant at the heart of the system and the more conservative, small C conservative, um, cautious, aware of the downsides that has been pushed to the periphery. And Brown Brothers is kind of the perfect example of that. And that's, you know, kind of you know, to bring it full circle is, is you know, you know, kind of gets to what you know, brought you to the to the topic in the first place and what you see in terms of the the the. Uh, the recipe for survival that, that Alexander Brown perfected that still seems to be working extremely well today. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't know it, right? Because they aren't public. So they have 5,000 employees, probably $2 billion in revenue, $500 million in profits spread between 30 plus partners and a lot of employees. There's a huge profit sharing plan at Brown Brothers now. If they were a publicly traded company, they'd probably be 10, 15, $20 billion, which is big. Right. But it's not one point four trillion dollars, Apple or, you know, however many hundreds of billions of dollars the financial firms have 
or you know the profitability of a private equity firm or a or a hedge fund. Um, but the fact that we don't pay attention to that and we don't appreciate that is part of the problem of why we're in the system that we're in, as well as this notion of you know they they lived and breathed the idea of you cannot endlessly beggar the commons. You cannot privately profit unless everyone is profiting somewhat. Um, and oddly enough, their elite hierarchical culture of the 50s was more economically equitable than our supposedly more equitable, democratic, less elite culture of the 2020s, where in a pandemic age, you know, tech firms have become the BMS of today, along with some financial firms. Um, even though that's supposed to be a more democratic capitalism that we live in, right? It's not dominated by a narrow elite. It's it's open to everyone in theory, but the, the world they're creating is far less equitable than the world that these hierarchical exclusive elites created because they had a notion of public service. So it's not, you know, you don't want to go back to that world, but you sure want this contemporary world to change for the better. And that's one way is to imbue a culture of you have to attend to the commons. You have to attend to the public good, particularly if you profited so mightily from it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I am writing a book about human beings solve for the problem of scarcity, right? So the great fear of the past two centuries was that there'd be too many people, we wouldn't be able to feed them, and the world would collapse under the weight of overpopulation. And given that that hasn't happened, and with you know depopulation looming, it, it almost certainly won't happen. The question is why. So I'm writing a global history of corn uh, as as one of the most important ways in which human be human beings solve for the problem of scarcity and invented a source of calories that, like I just said about Brown Brothers, had a lot of good, you know, kept people from starving and it's led to a lot of the world um, emerging into a middle class, but it's also had some downsides in terms of, you know, corn feeds meat and, and that creates all sorts of problems for the environment and caloric abundance has its own problems in terms of obesity, but corn is as, as, as the way in which we solved for scarcity over the past 200 years is my next book. Well, that sounds like a fascinating book. And I hope when you complete it, you uh, uh, can come back on our podcast and talk about it. Happily. <laughs> well, uh, Zachary Carabell, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much for having me.